James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Man, I had all this list of illustrations I was going to use for my, for my introduction. And as I was just sitting there last night looking at all these different stories, I wasn't decided on which one I wanted to use. Finally, I just decided to chunk them all. I was like, none of them are, are just doing this passage justice. And I came down to just wanting to ask you one simple question. So if you have a pen and you have a bulletin or if you have a sheet of paper or if you have skin or whatever, just I want you to write this question down. Because by the end of the service, by the end of this day, I would like for you to answer this question. And here's the question that our text is begging us and calling us to answer. What evidence is there of faith in your life? What evidence is there that you have a saving faith in your life? Because we are all counting on something in order to save us. Those who are within Christendom, those of us who are within the church, oftentimes we're thinking, well, man, my hope is in Christ or my hope is in my faith. Or some people, I think, wrongly say, well, my, my hope is in, is in my attendance at church. Or, or my hope is that if I'm just a good enough person, that God will love me and accept me because I'm good. And there's all these different answers out there of what we put our hope in. And James here is telling us that we need to put our hope in Jesus. And that there is a way, there is a clear way to ensure that we can have confidence that that hope is real in us. So what we want to do this morning is we're going to begin by standing together. We're going to read verses 14 through 26, and then we're just going to dive in. Answering the question, what is the evidence of true saving faith? James chapter 14, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good Even the demons believe, even the demons believe in their belief and God leads them to shudder in fear. Verse 20, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works and offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works, faith was made complete and scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by her works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. So this text is answering the question, what evidence should there be in my life that my faith is real? We're talking about this morning a saving faith. I think the first truth that we find in this text is that faith without works is dead. That faith without works is not a real faith. James begins in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 14, by asking these rhetorical questions. The first question he asks is, what good is it if you say you're a Christian, but you don't have works? What good is it if you're a Christian, but you do not have works? That's a rhetorical question, but if we were to answer out loud, what would it be? It's not. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's no good. If you are a Christian, you say, man, I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus. Jesus is my hope and my faith is in him. But you have no works in your life. James is saying that your faith is of no use, that it is of no good. Then he asks us a second rhetorical question. He says this, he asks this question in verse 14. Can such a faith save him? So if a person says he is a Christian and does not have works, can that faith be a saving faith? It's a rhetorical question, but if we were just to answer it right now, what would the answer be? Oh, that's, that's much better. It's getting better. Yeah, no. The answer is no. That a faith, if it is not accompanied by works, is not a saving faith. And he gives us an example beginning in verse 15. And he, he uses an example from the church. He said, let's say that you come to church. You come to the gathering of the saints. And not a visitor, but one of your own members, one of your covenant members comes to church. And how does it describe them? Without clothes and lacking in daily food. One of the people that you signed a membership covenant with comes to church without the appropriate clothes uh, that will keep them warm or that will keep them away from the elements without the food that they need to live. And one of you goes to them and they says, man, God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. I, I hope you have a great day. And I want you to like go from this place. I want you to be warm and I want you to be well fed. But you don't actually say, dude, I've I got a coat. I've got an extra coat in my car. Or I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got some cash in my wallet. Let's, let's drive down to Walmart and get you a coat because you're freezing out here. And while we're here, let's, let's, pick up, let's pick you up some food. Which faith sounds like a, a real faith? We know the answer. I mean, it, it's clear to us, it's logical to us that the true faith, that the real faith is the faith that sees our brother or sister in need. And we say, let me help you. 
that my heart is moved to compassion and my compassion then drives me out to the store because I want to help you out. Real faith, true faith, saving faith has works attached to it. Now, I think many people, especially if we've grown up in the church, they, they look at this passage and they say, is this, is this what the rest of the Bible says? Because doesn't Paul say that we're saved by grace through faith? And here, James is saying, no, you're saved by faith and works. And we say, what, what is true? Is a Bible, Bible making a contradiction? At Christ Community Church, this is what we believe about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. That the words in this book are true, that they are eternal, that they do not contradict. And if we see what we think is an apparent contradiction, you know what we, the assumption we make? We make the assumption that we're thinking wrong and we're interpreting wrong and that the Bible is true. But the Bible is right, and that, that's how we view and understand the Bible. So when we ask the question, is James, who said you need to have works to be justified, and Paul, who says it's not by works, it's by grace and faith you're justified, are they contradicting? Our answer is just going to be a straight-up no. What we believe is that they are harmonizing. Let's look at what Paul said about saving faith. This is what it says in the book of Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul said, For you are saved by grace through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. What is James saying, James is saying faith without works is dead, that you are in part justified by your works. Paul is saying here, you're saved by God's grace, by faith, and that it's not of your works. So how, how do these two things work together? And th- this, is, this is what I think the problem is. In our mind when we read it, we have a sequencing problem. We have a sequencing problem whenever we, when we read James and we read Paul. They mean different things. Paul says you are not saved by your faith. Rather, you are saved by grace. So what comes first? Is it our faith? Is it our works? Or is it God's grace? The thing that, the thing that saves you is God's grace. That's what saves you. Jesus' work on the cross is what saves you. When you're before the judgment throne of God, and it's not going to go down this way, but hypothetically, right? If you're before the judgment throne of God and he says, hello, human being, why should you enter into my kingdom? Don't say, well, I've got faith. Because your faith doesn't save you. What saves you is the grace of Jesus Christ, is the work of Jesus Christ. But how that grace is applied to your life is through belief. It's through faith that that grace that Jesus won for you on the cross is applied to your life. And once that grace is applied to your life, and this is where the sequencing comes in, 
once that grace is applied to your life, you cannot help but be changed. You cannot help but be changed. You see God's grace. You see Christ lifted up his sacrifice covering the sins of the world. And you say, that's what I believe. That's what I'm putting my trust in. And you put your trust in Christ. And then what happens is Christ then transforms you from the inside out. And part of that transformation is a desire to live a holy life and a desire to serve and love and sacrifice for other people. And James is telling people who are just saying, you know what? I've got faith. I don't need works. James is saying, if you truly had faith, your heart would be moved by compassion. If you truly had faith, you would have a burning desire to be holy and to be rid of the sin that so easily entangles us. That's what James and Paul is saying, and that is how they are agreeing together in this beautiful thing called faith. I was trying to think of a good way to, to illustrate this, um, and, and, and I told it to my wife last night, and she said, Stephen, that's horrible. It makes no sense. Uh, I'm going to try it anyways. So <clears throat> this isn't going to end well, is it? All right, so, so this is what I was thinking of. Let's imagine today's a Super Bowl, right? Uh, so let's imagine you've got tickets to see the Chiefs and the 49ers play football today. And so you got your tickets, you got your, your overnight bag, you get on a pl- plane, and you fly to Miami. You know that's where they're playing? Hard Rock Stadium. I had to Google this. <laughs> I had to Google this. But you get to Hard Rock Stadium, and you, you, you're, you're in your hotel already. You go to the Hard Rock Stadium. You go up to the nosebleed section. You're, you're, you're dabbing the blood off because even in this hypothetical, you don't have 50-yard line seats. And you're in your seats up in the nosebleed section, and the guy beside you says, man, I drove all night and all day from New York to get here for this game. How did you get here today? And you answer, I got here by faith. Is, is that what he's looking for? I got here by faith. Is that how you got to the game? Did you get to the game by faith? No, you got to the game with a 747 airplane and an Uber, right? That's how you got to the game. A lift. Is Uber old now? Oh, man, I got to keep up. All right. So, but that's how you got to the game. When we think of faith and works, and when we think of grace, faith doesn't redeem us. Jesus redeems us. When you had your bags in your hand and you were sitting in the terminal at that airport, you looked at that plane, you had faith that that plane would get you there in time for the game. You had faith that that plane wasn't going to drop out of the sky and kill you. You had faith that the pilot was well-trained and equipped and was not going to fall asleep behind the controls. You had faith in those things, and that faith drove you to get on that plane but it was a plane that delivered you. 
Grace delivers us to God. Grace redeems us to our God. But our faith is the trust in the things that will get us there. Imagine this. Imagine you have your Super Bowl tickets in your pocket. Imagine you have your overnight bag in your hand. Imagine you're at the terminal and you see your plane docking and they're calling for the passengers to get on the plane. And you're sitting there and you think, man, there's my plane. It's going to get me there to the stadium. Second call for this flight. It's time to go. Time to board. You're like, oh, man, it's going to be so much fun. It's going to get me there. I'm trusting in it. Final calling, and you're still standing there, bags in hand, tickets in your pocket, but you don't move. And they close the doors, and the plane drives off, drives off, flies off. Did you have true faith? No. Because the faith did not move you. It did not call you. It did not drive you to do something different, to to change places to get on the plane. The grace of God is there. The grace of God can redeem you. The grace of God can save you. But if you don't believe in it, if you don't trust in it, then it's not going to do anything for you. And how do you know if you trust? You trust by works. You trust by deeds. You trust by mercy. You trust by caring for others. You trust by being moved. You trust by being holy. That's, that's how salvation works. But there are too many Christians today who are standing in the terminal watching the plane drive off, fly off. There's too many Christians who aren't allowing the grace in their life and the faith in their life to drive them to be different, to drive them to change. And James call is calling out to believers saying, let your faith be real and let it change how you live your life. And that's why I asked you the question today is not to instill doubt is not to instill guilt. But the reason I asked you the question, is there evidence that your faith is real? Do you have the works? Are you pursuing the holiness? The reason I'm asking that question It's because the Bible asks that question. And the reason I'm asking that question is because I love you and I don't want you to live a life in disobedience and rebellion against God. Faith without works is dead. True faith, true faith has evidence that the faith is real. We see that in the next verses. James chapter 2. Let's go ahead and begin in verse 18. But some will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works. I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Oh my gosh, think, think about that verse alone. If all you have are your words that you're trusting in Jesus, if all you have is the words of, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in heaven, I believe in hell, I believe in Jesus, that's all you have in your life and you don't have any evidence. James is saying that faith is a demonic faith. Is that not weighty? 
if you say you have faith, but you do not have the deeds to back it up to show that it's real. He's saying you believe in the same way that the demons believe. He says true faith has the evidence of works. Verse 20, you senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't it Abraham, our father, wasn't he justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with works. And by works, faith was made complete. And scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called the God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also works. Faith without works is dead. So I I want to pause here just a little bit. Because within the realm of Christianity, I think most people would say we are justified by faith. But we have to realize that when people say, I am justified by faith, that I'm trusting in Jesus, when people say, I'm justified by faith, not everybody means the same thing. They mean different things oftentimes when they use the same phrase or the same words. So some people, whenever they say we are justified by faith, what they mean is that that the righteousness of Christ is infused into your life. Think of it like a gas tank. That when you put gas in your car and you fill the gas tank up, you infuse your car with gasoline and you have a full tank. You are infused with the righteousness of Jesus. But as you drive and as you burn that gas, what happens to that gas gauge? It goes down. And what do you have to do? You have to keep adding gas to that gas tank. That's, that's this idea that we are infused with the righteousness of Christ. And people who hold that view believe that you have to continually work in order to fill up that deficit. That as you burn the gas, you work hard in order to fill the gas back up. Christ is our original filling, but then we have to work hard. But what we believe is something different. We don't believe in the infusion of the righteousness of Christ, but rather what we believe is, is that Christ, his righteousness was, was imputed upon us, that it was put on us. So don't think of a gas tank that has to be continually filled up, but rather what we believe is that when we trust in Christ and our hope is in him, and our faith is in him, what Jesus does is he takes his righteousness like a robe. And he puts it over your shoulders. And it doesn't wear off. It doesn't fade. We walk around for the rest of eternity with Jesus' righteousness on us. We do not have to work because we've sinned some and we've got to make up for the sin. But rather, we just have Jesus' righteousness. And the reason that we work the reason that we are active, the reason that we pursue holiness, the reason why we pursue mercy and justice, the reason we we do those things 
is not because it's like, man, I've got to fill it up or else I'm not going to be good enough. The reason we do those things is out of a heart that says, man, look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at what he has given me. And out of love for Jesus, we then pursue righteousness. Whenever we have a true saving faith, we are told, we are told that, that it will drive us to work. And he gives the example of Abraham and Rahab, these, these two Old Testament characters. With Abraham, Abraham is oftentimes called the father of our faith. It's a pretty good title. Uh, Rahab is identified here as the prostitute. It's a different title. But the two were very the same. They both came from religions that didn't believe in God, that didn't worship God. They both committed these sexual sins. They are both without righteousness of their own. They both needed God to give them a righteousness. What does it say about Abraham? It says that Abraham believed God. He had faith in God and God credited to him. He gave him his own righteousness. But what did that righteousness do? The righteousness that God gave to Abraham drove Abraham to continually trust in him, to continually to try to obey him. Did he fall? You betcha he did. He continued to fall, but it kept driving him towards obedience, towards faith, towards love of God. Look at what it says in verse 22 with Abraham. You see that his faith was active. True faith is an active faith. You see that his faith was active together with his works and by works, faith was made complete. It's not, it's not like he's saying that the works were a necessary ingredient. He's saying that the works were a natural outflowing that showed that his faith was real. With Rahab, her story is a bit different. Rahab was a prostitute that lived in the city of Jericho back whenever the Israelites were just about to come into the promised land and, and take over that area for their, their promised homeland. And so Israel sent out these spies to Jericho to spy out the community, to spy out the city, their fortifications in order for their battle. And, and they were found, um, well, they, they were found out and people started looking for them. Uh, so they found themselves in this woman's house. Don't ask me why they're there. You probably know why they're there. But they found, they found themselves in her house. And whenever someone came to her door and they said, hey, there were some Hebrew spies, she had an option, didn't she? She could have said, they're in the back room. This is where they're hiding. I was waiting for you so I could rat them out. Is that what she did, though? That's not what Rahab did. Rather, Rahab hid the people and said, yes, they were here. And that's the direction they went. Why did she do that? Why did she do that? I think she did it. And I think scripture confirms this. She did that because she watched God's people. She heard the stories about what happened in Egypt as a child. She heard the stories about this massive group of people out in the wilderness, defeating kings, winning battles, the mighty powers and works of God around them. She saw all that and she knew they were across the river and she knew they were coming. And she said, I'm trusting in that God rather than the God of my own people. Her trust, her faith 
led her then and was confirmed by the fact that she hid the spies and sent them out another way. She had trust. She had faith. And we know that faith was real because of her actions. Jesus has this passage in the book of Luke chapter 6. that says, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. Uh, First thing I did when I bought my house is I walked all the way around my house and I ripped up every flower bed. It's not because I hate flowers. Uh, it's because I hate yard maintenance. Uh, and, and I don't want to be pulling weeds. I don't want to be planting flowers. But I just want to like mow right up against the edge of the house. Um, in fact, last time I did, I, I did put in a new flower bed, but I filled it with rocks um, and poison to kill everything. Um, and, I, and I built the flower bed to where... It goes with the flow of my lawnmower, so I don't have to weed eat as much. I know it sounds horribly lazy. I think it's quite effective. Um, I don't like to do yard work. I like simplicity in my yard. And in my backyard, about four or five years ago, I planted two trees, a plum tree and a fig tree. And for the last five years, you know what they've given me? Absolutely nothing. And they make my yard work a pain. Because every time I drive my lawnmower around them, I have to duck underneath the branches. I have to swerve around them. I just don't like it. This year I'm waiting. Because I I hear sometimes you got to give them time. I've given them time. It's like year five. I've given you five years, trees. You know what I'm going to do if they don't give me fruit this year? I'm going to cut them down. Sorry. I'm going to cut them down. And in my backyard, I burn everything. I want to cut them down, and I'm going to burn them. I'm not burning them out of spite. Burning them because that's the easiest way to get rid of them. Good trees, Jesus says, they, they produce good fruit. If you have the Spirit of God living within you, then you have goodness within you because of the Spirit of God. And so you are to then live out that goodness with your life. The Bible also says in multiple places that if this tree does not bear good fruit, you know what he's going to do? He says the axe is already at the root. He will cut it down and he will burn it. The reason we're here, Christ Community Church, is because we live in a community and we live in a world where people don't know Jesus. We are not here for our comfort. We are not here to do a cool, new, exciting thing. We're not here for any of those reasons. Do you know why we're here? We're here because the axe is at the root of so many trees. And God has called us out here on a mission to plead with people, to call people to repent and believe in Jesus. 
It's what we're called to do. It's why we're here. And that is accompanied, that desire is accompanied with all this other desire to work and to serve and to have compassion and have mercy. So I just want to end with, with these few questions. Do you truly believe in God? Is your faith in him? If you say yes, my next question is this. What is the evidence that your faith is real? If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for any length of time, there should be something different about you. You should be able to look back over the years of your life with Christ and say, I am a different man. I'm a different woman than what I used to be. I see a track record of me fighting sin and trying to be holy. I can see a track record of me trying to to love other people and serve other people, even when it's an inconvenience to myself. Is there any evidence that that is true? Here's a question. What sins are you currently fighting? What darkness that still has this foothold in your life and you're saying, you know what? I love Jesus more than I love this lifestyle and I love Jesus more than I love this sin and I want to pursue him. And do you have a lifestyle of service and mercy where you inconvenience yourself in order to serve the body of Christ but also to serve your neighbor. We live in a broken and hurting world. We are surrounded by people who, who are hopeless. And here we are, this, this little church in the middle of this community saying, we've got the answer for your hopelessness. We have the answer for your brokenness. Here it is. Christ Community Church, it is my prayer that when we say, yes, I believe, I have faith, that we will be able to then also have the works and the attitude and the heart that accompanies it. Let us stand and pray.